Hello and welcome to the Greetings from Wherever podcast. This show is about artistic inspiration and the creative process. Thank you so much for tuning in. Big thank you to all the patrons who make this show possible. To learn how you can join and support the show, head over to patreon.com slash Music. Let's begin. Welcome to the Greetings from Wherever podcast. I'd like to welcome an author out of New Jersey named Adam Knight to the show. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited. Yeah, this is going to be... I've been really looking forward to this. Um, I uh, I got to read your book at the trough and it's so good. I, I can't wait to talk all about it and really kind of dive into, you know, what that book's all about. I, you know, I don't know if I'm going to have to put like spoiler alert on the episode title or something like that. Cause <laughs> <laughs> that's the worst i don't know if you've listened to podcasts before and you're like there's an actor from your favorite show and they say something and you're like in the middle of the show and you're like no don't tell me that <laughs> oh oh absolutely absolutely <laughs> I, I hate that <laughs> so i'll try to avoid that <laughs> giving out spoilers too much um but yeah just for our listeners it's it's so crazy i mean this is so this feels like so long ago but you know my best friend is your younger brother. So like, you know, ever since like second grade, you've been basically my older brother, which is nuts. <laughs> so it like, is, I was thinking about that. Yeah. That I've known, <laughs> I've known, I've known you since you were a little second grader and yeah, was, now you're like an adult person. This I is was amazing. eight years old, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think when we first started hanging out, um, <laughs> it's so nuts, but, uh, <laughs> so we have, we have a pretty long history and, and now we're, we're adults and it's, it's, it's crazy, you know? Um, <laughs> It's crazy how time works, you know, yeah. Uh, but yeah. So um, I guess what have you been doing lately to kind of stay creatively busy during like quarantine and stuff? I guess I don't know how much that would affect an author, but, you know, tell me. You know, that's a that's a great question. Um, for some authors, they've been really affected by the quarantine, um, especially if they have had just had books out. Uh, lots of book tours have been canceled, uh, public, you know, public appearances have been cut back and things like that. Uh, so for that side of things, a lot of authors have been affected, but really one of the things that I love about writing is that, uh, we've been pretty much unaffected creatively. Um, at least I have, uh, I know that, that, you know, being able to, you know, quarantine has forced people to sit in their houses and not go out and be stuck in one place, but that's the one thing that you need for writing. Is yeah. that you need to be able to to just be stuck in a place and and get your work done. And uh, while the psychological effects of quarantine can sometimes be a roadblock for creativity, uh, in terms of the actual being being able to get the work done, you know, you know, being stuck in your house is just as as good as as normal everyday life. So for me on that on that side of things, uh, I really haven't been affected. I've been writing every day same practice it just has to adapt to this kind of new world we're in right now yeah that's so interesting that uh you should say that because you know as a songwriter it's 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 interesting it's kind of i can i can definitely relate because you know writing a song it's like yes you know you probably should be by yourself and secluded and just focusing on one thing you know that's when i write the best anyways some people write better with other people i mean i think i write better on my own but yeah, there there is that that mental toll of everything happening too that affects you know kind of informs the uh, productivity I think. Uh, but yeah, so um, I guess overall, like what? Why do you keep writing? Why do you write every day? Like what what brings you back to to writing? What why do you love it so much? 
Oh boy, I, I could yeah. I could talk about that all day long. <laughs> um, you know, writing is just something that I have always done and telling stories is something that I've always done. And I mean, I have the very first book that I ever wrote, I was maybe, I don't know, three or four and I trans, you know, I, I dictated it and my, my mom wrote it down and it was like three pages long and I illustrated it. And since then, I just have been always telling stories. And I think back on my childhood and even when I was a kid and like playing Legos you know, I love Legos as a kid, but when I think back at when I played Legos, it would be like six hours of making up this backstory of like these two armies and like who is the king and what was going to happen. And then you build these castles and stuff and then, you know, 20 minutes of smashing them to pieces. <laughs> and so what I realized is that when I was playing Legos as a kid, I was actually writing stories. Wow. Uh, and then as I got older, um, you know, I just, I just, I just enjoyed telling stories whenever we had those kinds of assignments in school. That's what I always dove into. Uh, and then when I was in high school, in place of having a social life, uh, what I would do is I would sit at my, at my computer, my, the hand-me-down for my parents when their old computer, and I would just hammer out this, this, uh, this fantasy story that I had been working on in my head. And, you know, it never really saw the light of day, but you know what, when you're, when you're first learning your craft, it's not supposed to go see the light of, of day. You know, you hear these stories about these authors who wrote their first book when they were 15 years old and they get it published. And those are really the exception to the rule because really your first attempts at craft are just for you. And so then I took that into college and, you know, I studied creative writing and literature there. And it's just, it's just something that I can't not do. And yeah. the days when I miss my writing, there's something really missing in my life. And so it's not even so much, I don't think saying, I don't think the right question is uh, what makes me keep writing is if it's something that I have to be pushed towards, pushed towards. It's, I just keep writing all the time and I have to work around obstacles in life because, you know, life throws lots of obstacles your way. But when it's not a part of my life, when writing gets pushed off to the side, that's when things go awry. And so I just have to keep keep writing every day. It's so interesting. I think that's kind of a common theme that has come up on the show is like, you know, whatever your art form is sort of takes on a part of you as a person, you know, it's, um, and I think that's, you know, something that I keep hearing from people like, you know, if they don't write songs, they don't perform. That's why a lot of musicians are having such a hard time right now yeah. is they're not getting that, you know, that payoff of getting to perform in front of people. And that's just become a part of their like, how they live, you know, it's like you, you have to eat, you have to get sleep and you have to perform for people. It's like this yeah. wild thing, but you know, I, it sounds like you kind of look at writing that same way, which is really, really interesting. Um, wanted to ask you, cause I, I know, um, you know, obviously cause we know each other and I, I follow you on Instagram and all that stuff. Uh, it's at Adam Knight books, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so anyone listening, go, go follow at Adam Knight books. Um, but one thing I see a common theme is you love to run. Um, and is that something that sparks your creativity in a way, or is that just a totally separate thing? Cause I know when I'm on a hike, sometimes that's when I get my best ideas. Uh, but that's, it might be a different thing for you. I don't know. Oh, um, yeah. Running. I, I think actually a lot about running and writing and the connections that they have with each other. Um, I mean, from a, from just a, a basic, getting the job done perspective uh running is really helpful for clearing my head 
And I, w- I will say this. I don't get a lot of ideas while I'm running because I'm trying to, you know, breathe and not get run over by cars and stuff. <laughs> but uh, what I find is after a good run, that's sometimes when the best ideas come, especially if my head's really buzzy before and I come back from the run and then everything settles. And then that's when the ideas start, start flying. Um, but I also find myself thinking more metaphorically about about it because running running has taught me so many lessons in life and um one of the lessons that i take into my writing is that you know every every uphill is followed by a downhill and every downhill is followed by an uphill and you know what you know you can you can feel great when you're flying downhill but you know what you're gonna have to run up the hill later so don't get too excited yet and you can feel like you're really struggling going up a hill, but don't worry, you'll get to the top and eventually, you know, you'll be coasting downhill later. And it's the same thing with writing. Like there are times when you're struggling and struggling, like, oh, I do not know what to do with, like, I got this problem in my plot and I can't figure out my way out of it. Well, guess what? Eventually you're going to get there. Event- like it's not going to be this bad forever. Eventually you'll get to a point where you're, you're coasting. And there are some yeah. days when you're sitting and writing. And like I said, I'll stare at the screen. I'll stare at the screen nothing's coming out and there's some days where my fingers can't fly fast enough to get the ideas out that are going through my head and you get good days and bad days and you know rainy days and sunny days and that's one thing that writing running has taught me about writing so something i asked uh i've asked all the guests that have come on this show so far and and plan to keep asking uh if you could be successful at any other type of creative art form what would it be uh, any other type of creative art form, you know, I'm not going to say this just because you're a musician, but I've got to <laughs> say, I would, I would love to be a rock star. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, music has always been an important part of my life. Um, starting in fourth grade, I learned violin and I played in the school orchestra all the way through high school. Uh, and then when I was in high school, I picked up the guitar and I started playing a little bit of guitar. Uh, and then more recently, like the last four five, six years, I have been switching over to bass. I think bass fits my personality better. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not much of a spotlight guy. I like to be the guy in the back who's kind of holding everything together. That just sort of suits my my personality. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that's really held me back from being a rock star is having more than a minimum amount of musical talent. And so, <laughs> um, so I can dream of being a rock star, but like I don't actually have the ability for it. Um, but yeah, I think I I would love to be in being a rock band and, and, and perform. And uh, it's, okay. you know, I think, and I figured out too why that is. Um, it, and it's because in some ways for all their similarities, music and writing are very, very opposite forms of art. And he, and here's what I mean by that is when, when you're playing, when you're performing and you know, you, you nail that solo or you and the band are just, even if you don't have an audience, if you're just jamming together and you and the band are just in that groove, you feel it, you feel it immediately. You get immediate audience feedback. You get, you know, you, you and the bandmates are looking at each other and you've got it, you've got that groove. When you're writing, you don't get that. You know, I could be sitting at my computer and I'm like, oh man, this is a great scene. This is some great stuff. And maybe if I'm lucky in two or three years, somebody's going to get to read it. And then maybe they'll get to make a comment online about how much they like that scene. That's a lot of delayed gratification. Wow. Yeah. And, and so what I really, really love and would love to get out of being a performing musician is like that immediate connection with the audience and not having to wait forever and ever to know wow, is this going to resonate with anybody? 
Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I've definitely never thought about that like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess in a way, it's like it's like writing songs, you know, because you know you might have. Well, if you're with a band or something, you would get that gratification of like that was a sweet lick, bro. Like you know, that's how right. it goes in practice. You know, of course, <laughs> bro. <laughs> just kidding. Um, but you know, I think it is interesting like thinking of the thought of like you're writing a song that probably no one will hear for a long time um or you know but it won't be years like that and it won't be so so yeah. like i hope someone leaves a comment on my amazon and says right that <laughs> they like this oh part. i really love this character like i wrote that character three years ago i wrote it see <laughs> See, and uh, I, cool, I have a little right? confession to make. There are times when I'm sitting and writing and I hit I, and I hit those those great spots. I will do a little air guitar. I'm like, <laughs> like I'm imagining myself as I'm writing, like I am up there. I'm in the spotlight. Everybody's rocking out to me writing this scene because yes, man, what else is going to keep me going? I just I want to see you on a stage at a festival just writing a book. You know, that's, that's what I want. Well, that's it's like a you camera. You know, whenever they have talent you. shows in in in, uh, in in high school or anything, they're like, oh, oh, Adam, you should go, you should go, do the talent show. I'm like, what am I gonna do? Sit up there and like write a story? Like, I'll get my laptop out. Yes. And like, oh, that's, a, that's a great idea. You know, a little light bulb pops up over my head. Just like for hours. <laughs> I like this. Uh, I like this where this is headed. Have you ever thought about like writing about being a musician? Have you done that? Is that something? I don't know. Cause I think that's an interesting thing about this question is like, have you ever thought about, you know, using your art to explore that world? I guess that part of yourself. I've I'm, I'm, I really am very interested in, in music and in musicians and in the power of music. Um, I haven't, I haven't yet got a book that goes there, but I have ideas. I've always got ideas that are bouncing around there, but I do think that the something that really interests me in the music world is, is the sort of the power of, of the musician to transform people. And when you're in a concert and the entire outside world disappears and that band is the whole world, there's something really mythic about that to me and i know that i've got a story in there somewhere about that but it's not it hasn't really turned into a plot yet it's just kind of a concept that i'm interested in yeah yeah that's uh that's really cool man well um so you know we've kind of we've gotten into it we're i'm feeling good you feeling you feeling good over there i think it's definitely to do our deep dive no i'm okay. not really gonna do that <laughs> radio thing but uh you know i think uh i really want to talk and i wanted to leave a lot of time to talk about your your book at the trough i think it's uh an incredible book i've uh Thank i just you. finished it yesterday actually i was like talk about deadlines um <laughs> but no i've been really enjoying it um it's a really interesting look at education and and a terrifying look at the future to be honest with you um in a lot of ways uh so i guess if for my listeners i know you've probably had to describe your book before how would you describe it like what's your elevator pitch about the book um the, my elevator pitch book uh, i described it as fahrenheit 451 meets dead poet society <laughs> that that's what it is it's it is about the power, it's a book about the power of poetry, about the power of teaching, about the power of human connection, and how that can possibly persevere in the face of 
the increasing government control and corporate control of education. Because for people who are not in education, uh, you know, they, they, education is something that everybody agrees has a lot of flaws, but nobody agrees exactly what those flaws are. And unfortunately, what happens is a lot of people, unfortunately, people in positions of power in government and corporations, their vision of school is from just one side of things, from being a student. And people think back to, well, when I was a kid, this is the way education was. When I was a kid, this worked or that worked. But they don't understand the teaching side of things. And so as a result, what's happened is you have people who are politicians who think they know about education because at one time they were a student or people who run powerful corporations who think they understand education and they get the power to make these very, very influential decisions. And people who are not in education don't always see this. You know, oh, a textbook is a textbook. Well, a textbook's not a tech, just a textbook. A textbook was created by a company and it was sold to a school district. And there's a flow of money through education. And, you know, there's a lot of concern on the public's part about how much money is spent on education and on where that money's going. And what ends up happening is that people who don't really know what's going on end up having the most influential decisions and people who are relatively powerless, like teachers and, and, and parents and even, even administrators, they kind of get stuck with whatever is sold to them. And so that's, that was really the, the foundation of where the book came from is it is, as a teacher, I was seeing more and more dangerous decisions and dangerous trends in education, uh, pushing us towards education being seen as a consumable product rather than as a valuable experience. Absolutely. And kind of on that point, um, do you do you look at this book as a prediction or do you is it more of like kind of a prediction, but kind of your imagination running wild or like, you know, where does it fall on that, that scale for you? So it, um, it started off as just kind of a thought experiment, you know, so, so the trend that I, it started off with this point of, well, companies and the government are getting all this control over education. What's going to happen if that doesn't get stopped. And then where my imagination took that was, well, what's going to happen is that rather than the big, the big click, one of the big turns for me where I really, it went from just a, a brain experiment, an idea, a thought experiment to an actual fictional world is I actually thought about places like Blockbuster. All right. And I thought about how for decades, if you wanted to see a movie, you had to go to the video store. Right? You had to go and you had to pick out the DVD or the VHS, for those of us who are old enough to remember VHS, <laughs> and you had to rent it and bring it back. And for a long time, people could not imagine a world outside of that. Like that was, that was the way it worked until we started getting these streaming services. And then all of a sudden, it went from that's just the way it worked to that's really old fashioned. So I took that same approach, that same mentality, and I applied that to education. Well, what are some things that you have to have in education? Well, obviously you have to have schools. Obviously you have to have teachers. Well, then I took that, that blockbuster mindset and I applied to it. Well, what if we don't have schools? What if we don't have teachers? What if these companies that make educational products, they folks, they make tests, right? All the standardized tests that our students have to take these days that are just normal part of, of schooling, they're designed and created by companies. Well, what if these companies start to look at 
physical school buildings as like blockbusters? What if they see teachers as as kind of obnoxious middlemen who are getting in the way of delivering their products directly to students. And that's when it really started to snowball. And I said, well, in 30, 40, 50 years, maybe there are no teachers, there are no physical schools. Kids can sit at their homes and they can turn on their screens and they can get directly administered to them the educational products that are sold by these companies. And how do they, well, where's this money gonna come from? It's gonna come from advertising. And so what happens is, the kids in the in in the novel, all, all students, they sit and they watch videos, right? They watch videos, pre-recorded videos by teachers, right? But teachers are really just paid actors because they don't actually need somebody with teaching experience to read the script. And so they watch these videos, and the videos are often interrupted with pop-up ads, and so kids can click and they can buy, purchase things as they're sitting and learning. And then in place of testing, because ugh, testing's boring, nobody likes testing, they have edu games. There are educational games, and those are their assessments. And so what happens is kids really, instead of sitting in a, in a school building being taught by a teacher, they sit at home, they watch videos, they play games, and then eventually once they complete enough games, then they get to graduate. Yeah. And so that was, it was, and I was, as it snowballed into that, I was like, well, this is crazy. But, you know, in 1990, the idea that Blockbuster could not exist anymore would also seem crazy. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting kind of thinking about um, building this, this world of, you know, the future of education, what that looks like, you know, you kind of touched on that. Um, I feel like there's a lot of instances in the books where it's like, you sort of like answer all these questions that one might have reading it. Like, you know, okay, well, what happened to all the books, you know, and there's kind of a program where, you know, people, if correct me if I'm wrong, but they, they got money to recycle their books. Right. Like, and so, so people can't even read those anymore because everyone wanted to make their money from the books that they had. And that was more important to them at the time. And, um, you know, there's that. Well, that, that that idea was kind of a riff on, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. I mean, Fahrenheit 451, um, they had squads of people burning books. All right. And that was, that was also kind of like an echo back to um, the actions of the Nazis who were burning books. But in Fahrenheit 451, it was seen as more benevolent. Like these books are, are a nuisance. So we're going to burn them. But the things like that, like the, the, that more, a violent act, like burning a book, would draw a lot of resistance. But I, I was thinking, well, if they could incentivize it, make people willingly give up their their dusty old, you know, who needs physical books? We've got all, everything is electronic now. So if, if they could incentivize it and make it fun, um, so they'd have these great, recy- they called them recycling parties in, in, right. in my book. And they'd have these, you know, big bonfires and and cookouts and and it's a big party and everybody can bring their books down. And they get, you know, a, you know, a certain amount of money for every book that they, that they donate to their cycling program. Um, but then the underlying purpose for this is that the educational companies, well, company, because it's a monopoly that makes all the reading material no longer has these physical books that are out of their control. Everything's under their control. So the recycling program lets them gain control over what everybody reads. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's interesting because yeah that does answer that question of like okay why wouldn't people just learn about the old world through books um you know or uh yeah i mean it's you know a a constant theme throughout this book you know that i i kind of realized by the end it seems to be sort of this battle between new and old you know and i think that's something that we're always fighting and we talked about with the way 
books are being put out or the way that music is being put out now. It's like there are pros and cons to both. And there are people that love the new way of things. And then there are people that love the old way of things. Like, I think that's, um, you know, a really interesting kind of, uh, kind of, uh, idea and like, you know, really theme throughout this book from what I, from what I gather. Um, so I guess like, it seems fairly obvious from the way things are, um, are worded and like the way certain characters are, are painted in the book. Uh, but where do you stand on that? Do you like the way things like used to be like done in education? Like, are you, it seems like you're resistant to the change in education, but would you say there are people who love it? I mean, I don't know. Like that's, uh, I know the book makes me sound like I'm anti-technology and anti-progress in education. And I, and I, and I mean this sincerely, I really am not. Because okay. technology has really opened, really opens up tremendous, tremendous possibilities for students. Um, and one of the biggest things that technology can do is it can connect people. Uh, and especially in, say, in rural areas, there are students in rural areas who can have a Zoom meeting with an actual author who lives in a city thousands of miles away. And technology enables things like that. And technology enables uh, students to to do research they could never have, you know, they, they would have had to go to a university library to do years ago. And now they can sit in a, on a Chromebook and they can do it like that. Um, so I really am not anti-technology, but I think that people should be a little bit more technology wary because as we know from, from game systems, technology can be very, very addicting from game systems, from cell phones. And what I do see happening is that the, the increased reliance on technology to do the teaching for teachers instead of being a tool for teachers. And, and, it, and it's tempting because there's a lot of, of fun educational games out there that it's very easy to just, you know, have the kids play a game and then that'll be in place of learning. And um, so I really am not anti technology i think i think teachers and parents and students should be a little bit more wary of what the technology is doing but i i definitely think that it's a great tool and it can connect people and give people access to information that was that's unprecedented in the history of humanity i mean since the you know the power of the internet allows people really with any connection anywhere in the world to learn almost anything. Uh, what I am anti though, is I'm anti corporations having too much control over what is taught. And, and I'm, I'm anti, I'm very anti uh, advertising and marketing directly to students. Yeah. And you know, this, and this sounds like, like a far-fetched idea, like, well, you know, like, well, that that never happened, but we really are only a short step away from some underfunded school district going to Nike and saying, look, we desperately need a new gym. Can you build us a new gym? And so suddenly it becomes, you know, the such and such town Nike Memorial Gymnasium. You know, we're really not that far away from it. Eventually they're going to look at the, you know, the power of, of the dollar and say, look, we got to go where the money is. And what I'm very, and the, the great thing about public education is that it is for the public good and it is a space relatively free of of marketing to to children who are who really are a captive audience you know if you're a, a student in school you have no choice but to consume what's put in front of you whether that's whether that's 
education, whether that's food, whether that's products. And so far we've been able to kind of hold that at bay, but you know, I don't think it's that far of a leap to start having corporate sponsorships of things in schools. So the schools can finally get their, the stuff that they need. And then from there, that's, that's a straight path down to selling directly to kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I hope uh, nobody's watching from a corporation or, right. or reads your book and just says, Oh, this is a great idea. <laughs> Let me just interrupt these zoom meetings for, uh, for schools and sell them this product. That would be, right. but I'm sure they're already thinking that. <laughs> The book is, this book is a cautionary tale. It is not a blueprint. <laughs> yeah, it's not a blueprint. Good, good call. Um, so uh, one thing that I found interesting too is that there is a kind of minor plot line of like the love story between Jennifer and Melody. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Jennifer calls her her dark spot. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Da- yeah. Um, which is a really interesting reference. Uh, but I think it's interesting and uh, I, I want to know your thought on this, that, um, you know, the, their love story is there, but it, it's not, it doesn't really take up too much of like the space in the book or like take up too much of the story. Um, is that something that you intentionally tried to avoid? Or is that just like, I just want to say enough about this to move the story along, like, or, you know, where, where are you at with that? Um, I think, I think that actually, I think you actually hit it pretty accurately. Um, just for the listeners, um, the 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 really the two main two of the main characters. Uh, the main character is Jennifer Calderon, and she is she is on tra- on track to become a perfect student. And by perfect student, it means that she has never missed a question on anything ever in her life. And in her mind, this makes her you know, maybe the smartest student in America ever because she's never gotten a question wrong. Um, and now what it really means is that she's just very good at playing games and wa- video- watching videos and playing games. She has a mind that kind of kind of absorb the relevant details and then spit them back up in the games. And so in the course of the novel, she starts to learn that she's actually not quite as smart as she thought she was, but she's got a deeper kind of wisdom, but it takes a while for her to get there. Um, and so Melody is her girlfriend and Melody is, Melody was just a fun character to write. She's, she's a foul mouthed, anti-authoritarian, uh, deliberately, goes deliberately against trends. Um, she loves to dress in kind of nineties grunge style, which, you know, by the year the you know, novel takes place is ancient history. She deliberately does these things that go against everything that she's supposed to do in society. And, that is really what her what draws Jennifer to her is that Jennifer is very much uh, these are the rules this is the way things work this is how you're successful and she's following her life according to the prescribed pattern of how you're successful and so naturally she's drawn to this person who deliberately rejects everything that her society says. Um, that being said, I didn't really want to make. I didn't want to turn it into a love story into a romance and so the, their relationship. I developed it enough to make it be believable and I developed it enough that it could be an integral part of the story. And it really is. Uh, but I didn't feel like this, the story needed, you know, lots of, of love scenes and, and extended dialogue about their relationship because it just didn't feel like that was what the book was about. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and I, you know, I, I could have gone in that direction, but the book was already long enough as it was. I didn't need to add scenes that weren't going to move it towards where I wanted it to be. 
Yeah, I guess that's a that's a really interesting uh, point too. Like, is there a thought of like, okay, I don't want to make this too long, like, or do you think about like what you like to read in books, or is it like, you know, as far as that goes, like the length and the the content in it, like, do you think about what you like to read, or is it like, are you thinking about the reader itself, like the average reader, like how does that thought process work? Um, that's that's a, a, a great question about about creativity and about the, the, the role that the writer has. Um, when ultimately a, a, a work is only of, of writing is only going to be authentic. It speaks to the writer. So I'm only going to write something that is going to speak, is going to speak to me. Uh, you know, like I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I guess I could just follow popular trends and say, Ooh, what do people want to read? And then write that. And, but you know, that's, that's not really a great way to be a creative artist. And it's also not really a great way to be successful because if you're following trends in, in publishing, you know, remember the book that you're, you're, you're the new bestseller that you're opening up now was probably written three, four five years ago. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's, if you're just trying to write to what you think people are going to want to buy, you're, you're going to always going to be on the, the tail end of things there. Uh, but that being said, I am a big believer in that writing is an act of communication between the writer and the reader. And if you don't take the reader in consideration, then you're just journaling, you know, you're just writing for yourself. And so what you have to do is, is you always have to write something that speaks to you and what anything that I write and I write a diverse number of genres like I, I write about every if I describe to you all the writing projects that I'm working on you're going to think that I'm I sound like three or four different people because <laughs> I've got like all these different wide-ranging interests but they're all things that speak to me somehow that being said once I've written that first draft or once I've gotten the story down I gotta say okay well what does the reader not want all right at this point you know maybe I've rambled for 50 pages about this thing that nobody's going to care about maybe those 50 pages need to go and and there and you know there were there were a, a number of points in at the trough that, that that happened. I wrote I wrote 40, 50 page chapters that I later looked and said that was a lot of fun to research and a lot of fun to write, but it has no bearing on the rest of the book, and mm. nobody's going to want to sit through it and read it. So, writing is always an act of communication between the writer and the reader, and you have to say, well, what do, what do I want to say? What do I want to express? But also what's the reader going to get out of this and how can I make this be the most possible fun for them to, to read and to experience? Yeah. I think, uh, it's why I just thought about like, it's interesting with the ideas that didn't make the final product, you know? Um, it's like, I wonder if books ever have like a director's cut, you know, or like, you know, sometimes they do the yeah. uncut version. Um, but that's, yeah. Um, if you're, if you're super successful, like Stephen King, for instance, um, the, the stand is, you know, like it's like a thousand pages long and the public, I mean, when it first came out, it, it was like, I want to say it was like eight or 900. And after he, he released uh, an uncut version, which added like three or 400 pages in there that the publisher had made him get rid of. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's not better, but you know, it's, you always got, you always leave something on the, the cutting room floor and, you know, most of the time, you know, with, when you're writing something, you're working through a lot of ideas and a lot of the, the working through stuff has to get cut until what you get at the end is, is a really polished finished product. 
do you do you feel like you do your own self-editing for the most part or like you know is there like obviously there you know there had to be an editor at some point with this book but you know like how much how difficult is that process like handing over a book to an editor and being like here look at this and tell me what's wrong with it like i because for me i definitely remember this time before the band's last album came out um and where we all sat in a room where i just put all my lyrics up on this big screen and said like hey guys like do all of these make sense let's go through all these lines and talk about how they could be better and it was terrifying and awful but it, it made for better lyrics i think so you know i think you know it's kind of my experience with that handing something over uh to other people to <laughs> critique is that scary for you or is that just part of the process like i don't know um I love I love the way you put that. It was it was terrifying and awful, but it, it it made it better. And that's I think it's the same thing with with writing. Now with writing, there's usually a couple phases of it. Um, I mean the first the whole first part of it is just the book you with the book. And so you know you you're brainstorming, you're writing ideas, you write a draft. What I generally do is I will write my first draft, and then I will go back. I'll let it sit for usually a few weeks, because you know when you want to get some distance from it after you've written your first draft. And then I'll go back and I'll reread it and I'll, I'll look at what works, what doesn't work. <clears throat> and then I'll make some changes to it uh, until I feel like it's, it's readable. Right? I know it's not going to be perfect after I'm done the second draft, but like, okay, the, like everything seems to make sense and flow together. Then what, I, then what I'll do next is I'll hand the book off to a few people called beta readers and they, they look, they read the book and when beta readers look at your book, they're really giving you feedback, very general feedback. Uh, you know, things like, was this boring? Was this confusing? Did you like this? Did you not like that? It's not really nitpicky stuff, but you want to get your first feedback from, uh, from some different readers. And they don't have to be trained writers. They can just be people who want to read a book. And so they'll, they'll say, oh, I really like this character. Oh, this scene made no sense. And that information will give me the the feedback I need to go back and do a third or a fourth draft where I really start to shape the story. And it's a little nerve wracking to give the book to beta readers because that's the first time the book has left your control. But you also know that this is not, these people are not here to critique it. They're not here to, to rip it to shreds. They're just giving you some feedback. And if they say, honestly, man, that book made no sense or it was terrible. Well, I guess I'd rather know from, you know, from a friend right now than to, you know, hear it from a publisher or, you know, you know, heaven forbid the book gets published and the, the public says it says that about it. So yeah, after I've, after I've done three or four drafts and eventually I'll hit a point where I say, I think this book is the best that it can be. I have got every word, every sentence, it's everything's pitch perfect. And so then that's when it starts going out, making its rounds. And then when eventually the book gets picked up and then an editor says, this book is terrific. Here are 12,000 suggestions of how you're going to make it better. Oh my like, God. Oh, I guess it's not, yeah. but you know what? Like you said, it's, it's awful. And it's painful seeing all that red ink on the screen and all these things that need to be moved around and then it's done. And like, Oh, Oh yeah. I see that. Yeah, that is better. Yeah. 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 yeah I well, guess you're right. Well, it's interesting with, um, like working with a producer on like an album or something. Cause they'll have feedback for you. Like, Hey, you know, you could have said this line better. I know you have better in you or like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, do you, I guess with that, that's, 
a producer to me when it's working well is sort of like another member of the band where they kind of have that level of say in how like a song ends up um to me it's like they don't have too much power but they have power to like contribute their ideas and we can fight back on them now is like an editor sort of the same thing or is it like when you give your stuff to a publisher you have to just go with whatever they say or you're breaking contract how does that work no, that that's that's very much like it. Is you know I, one of the things I love about writing, is that it's a it's a solitary act. Is that I can like that I can go to my own headspace and my own creative world. But the, but the act of making a book is very collaborative. It's not just one one person scribbling away in a room, but it's it's a, t- a team of people. You've got editors, you've got proofreaders, you've got agents, you've got cover designers, you've got a whole team of people working to make a book successful. So. While writing itself is pretty solitary, the whole process is very collaborative. And it is the same with an editor. An editor gives suggestions, but uh, ultimately it's, it is up to the writer to make the corrections or not. You know, Now you want to have, as a writer, you want to strike a balance where you, uh, you have your own vision and your own integrity. Like if you just say, yeah, okay, yeah, okay to every suggestion, then it's very easy for an over, you know, a heavy-handed editor to kind of take control of your product and make your project and make it something that's not really what you want. Yeah. On the other hand, you don't want to get a reputation as somebody who's so hard-headed, who you fight tooth and nail over every line, over every word, that you become difficult to work with. Um, I, I say this about myself, and I'm not saying this as a humble brag. It's just I know who I am. One, when I am editing and working with an working with an editor or a proofreader or something like that i have very little of my own ego invested in it um because my my attention is towards the project not towards myself is what i yeah. guess i'm what, I, what i'm trying to say and, and like i said i'm not trying to, to to humble brag or anything but there are some writers who are like no these are my words they cannot change but it's not about me it's about the book and so really I'll accept whatever changes you come up with if I think it's going to make the book better because ultimately my goal is to get the best possible story out there. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's a great perspective. And I think, you know, one that it took me a long time to get to as a songwriter um, is, yeah, it's like this idea of, okay, okay, like whatever serves the song, that's it. It's all about serving the song. And I feel like that's a lot of, you know, it kind of doesn't matter where it comes from. It's like, how do we make this song better? Uh, great. Let's do that. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so yeah, another thing about this book that I find really fascinating is like, you've almost written another book within the book called the trough by Charles Winston, who's a character Mm -hmm. in the book. That's kind of, you know, teaching these kids kind of the old way. Um, and, uh, it's, it's really interesting the idea of a book within a book now, like we haven't really gotten into like influences too much, but like, is that something that you you've seen in other books? Did something influence that idea? Like how, where did you get that? Like to do a book within a book like that? Um, so I knew, I knew that I wanted the character of Charles. Charles is really the, uh, uh, along with, with Jennifer is the other main character. He's this cynical, burned out former teacher. His, his job is with this educational corporation. And he, what he does is he basically, he backup checks the computers. So the computers are grading the essays and he has to kind of check anything that gets flagged. And so he's reduced to no more than, than 
working as a backup for a computer and he's he's angry at the system and and he's got this this major chip on his shoulder and what ends up happening is that is that melody who's the anti-establishment person uh finds that this teacher is living in the same building as they are and so he, she introduces Charles to Jennifer. And of course they immediately butt heads because Jennifer believes that she's, you know, the, the best student in the country. And Charles is like, this whole system's broken. You don't know anything, but the three of them end up forming this relationship where they start to, to learn and read together. Now, Charles's ideas are kind of crystallized in this book, the trough, which was his angry ranting, kind of diatribe against the educational system. And he wrote this book and he published this book and it was going to turn the world upside down. And it was going to stop everything in its tracks. Well, guess what? It didn't work out. Nobody ever read the book. Uh, and part of the reason nobody read the book is that the educational corporation called Eduforce deliberately tried to, to wipe its existence out. So there's only a few copies left out there in the world, uh, which Melody happens to, uh, to get a hold of one. So, He's got this. There, there is a book within a book. Now, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't directly inspired by another work that I read that that I got the idea from. But I knew that Charles had to have somewhere this this manifesto of his ideas. Yeah. And I won't lie, uh, a lot of that manifesto came straight through from me. Like yeah. I kind of, I kind of blew the doors off my mind, and I said, okay, I'm gonna just be unhinged, and I'm just gonna like ramble and rant for a while about all this crazy stuff in education and yeah. i did and then what i did is i basically cut away all the stuff that didn't make sense and i kind of fine-tuned what was left and i had this book and so it was probably it was probably 20 or 30 pages of of ranting and raving and you know it was set in in the fictional world of at the trough but it was a lot of ideas that were things that were directly how i felt now in the revision process so in the first draft of the book, what I did is I had a scene where Jennifer sits and she reads this book. And I went back when I was doing my, my revising and what ended up happening was that scene slowed the whole thing down because the story is mm. chugging along and the characters are moving forward and all this stuff is in motion. And then all of a sudden the main character stops and reads for like 20, 30 pages. And like, that's, that's not going to cut it. So yeah. then the solution that I came up with, because I really wanted to have that element of this book within a book, I wanted to have some of Charles's undistilled ideas and about the fears of education, I still wanted them in there. So what I did is I kind of made them, I actually made them epigraphs for each chapter. So each chapter starts out with an excerpt from this fictional book within the book. And then that way the reader gets a little taste of it all throughout the, the novel, some of these ideas, uh, but they don't have to sit and listen to some old man ramble and rant for, for 20, 30 page stretches at a time. Yeah, and it also a, forced me to get down to what is the most important stuff that I wanted to say in those passages. Yeah, it's so interesting hearing that perspective from the person living in those times, thinking about all the changes and kind of being bitter about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, oh, that's like rightfully bitter about it. It sounds like it sucks in a lot of ways, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one observation that I made kind of that just hit me is just like it's interesting because the um, edu edu force um, – is, did I say that right? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Yep. So, you know, they like to brag that, you know, they've like catered all these education games to each learner. Right. But the thing is, you know, you find out through Charles Winston's kind of secretive classes with these kids that like someone like Melody 
doesn't learn well with anything involving the edu- educational system that's in place like mm-hmm. for her so you know but but then you see her in that little class where they're talking about poetry and and uh you know kind of writing and and being creative and things like that where you start to see she's the all-star and jennifer is the one that kind of mm-hmm. sucks at it going into it which is just a really it's a really interesting look at education in general and meeting needs of kids and, and meeting kids where they're at. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really interesting message and kind of, I don't know if you meant to do that, but that's just something oh, that hit me for absolutely. sure. Absolutely. That yeah. was that. Absolutely. That's one of the things as a teacher, you know, I've been teaching for 14 years now and I, I teach middle school. So the kids are right at this transitional age where like, they're not really kids, but they're definitely not adults yet. And let me tell you, being a teacher, you get to see very close up how different people's minds work very differently. And, you know, there are some, there are some kids who are very good at, you give them a book, you give them a, a, a text passage, they read it, they answer the questions and they do great. And then they're off, but that's not all students. There are some kids who don't learn well that way. Some students need to talk it out. Some students Uh, do better when they get to use technology. Some kids fall apart when they're handling technology. You know, some kids work great independently. Some kids need to be with their peers. And I think one of the things that concerns me is whenever I see some educational product that's, you know, your one-stop shopping for, for your educational needs, or this one program will revolutionize your whole classroom. And the thing is, is that it might for some kids, but then not for others. And the problem with having a monopoly like we have in, like I have in the novel, is that there's one form of learning, and that's by watching videos and answering questions or playing games. And for students who that works for, it's a great system. But for students who don't, like Melody, who who want to work with physical text, want to hold the book in their hands, who don't think in straight lines, their thoughts are more like chain lightning bouncing all over the place, uh, and who who have these this this sort of stubborn resistance to being told well this is the way things are for students like that sitting and and watching videos and and playing games is not a good way to learn and so in those scenes where you know the three of them form this book club this reading club what they what they discover is that you know though jennifer is good at answering questions what she's not good at is dealing with with being challenged because the thing is with any technological product that takes the place of a teacher and we're all teachers are already using these things. Now we, we have a lot of technology where in place of actually teaching, we can just show the video or give them the, the, the lesson or give them the game. What ends up happening is that they don't get challenged because if they don't understand nobody can call them out on it. Or if they, if they just passively accept whatever the educational product tells them, there's nobody who can say, well, wait, think about it this way or think about it that way. Yeah. There's no feedback. No yeah. feedback, and they're not forced to think critically, and so, uh, and that's and that's really one of of Jennifer's main weaknesses is her inability to think critically. She's good at regurgitation, which is one form of showing learning, but that's not the only one. And so she can't create independent creative thought the way Melody can, and so, like you said, you know, Melody ended up becoming the superstar because she is able to engage with the teacher directly in a way that Jennifer can't. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you one more question about the book. Yeah. Um, so I think at the end, you, I don't know if you did this intentionally or thought this way, um, but it seems like you left room for a sequel. Is there going to be another book about this world? What do you think? 
What do I think? All right. So when I wrote the book initially, I had planned on that being this being it. Like yeah. this is it. I told the story that I want to tell. And yeah. then since then, I would say probably 60 to 70% of the people who have read it and talked to me about it have said, so it seems like you left an opening for something else there. And so I will say this, I am thinking about more things. Okay. Um, I don't know exactly what shape it's going to take yet um, or where the story is going to go. I've got ideas, but like I said earlier, ideas, you know, I get ideas all the time. The ideas are not yet a story, but I'm, I'm working on it. Yeah. And a well, lot cool. of the ideas for my story actually come from questions that readers have. So readers will, will ask me, well, well, how did this happen? Or what about that? And it gets me thinking, oh, well, yeah, how did that happen? Or where, where does that come from? So um, there is there is more in the works. There's more coming. It isn't on the screen yet. It isn't, it isn't on paper yet, but it's it's bouncing around in my head. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I would I would love to read it myself. Um, will there will there be a movie and who would? <laughs> Who Boy, would play so. all the characters? <laughs> I, I hope so. You know, our, our next uh, our next interview, I'll be from my uh, from my apartment in Hollywood. So, yes, uh, perfect, perfect. Just you know, you know who to call to do the soundtrack. Just uh, yeah, you got just it. Hit me up, brother. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining me today. This has a very been a very enlightening conversation. I think I kind of told you in the beginning before we started recording. I don't know a lot about writing. I it you know, I love to read books occasionally and stuff. So it was really cool to talk to you about that process and, and learn about all that. So thank you very much. Uh, it's, you know, it's been my pleasure. I, I love talking about creativity and about the writing process. I think the writing process, I think people get intimidated or mystified by it. You know, whenever, whenever I read Q and A's with authors, the first question is, well, where do you get ideas from or how do you work? And the thing is, is, is I don't like the idea of the writing process or the creative process. I like the idea of a writing process or a creative writing process. I mean, some people work best when they're, you know, sitting on a train surrounded by people, sitting in, in Starbucks surrounded by people. Other people have to be locked away all by themselves and have total quiet. Um, some people work in short bursts. Some people work in long stretches. You know, if, you know, I know some people, some writers who will stay up till 1 a.m. writing Whereas I know myself, like after 4 p.m., I'm a drooling mess. You know, I get my <laughs> yeah. most creative stuff done between like like 6 and 8 or 9 a.m. You know, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a morning person. And so I think that um, just being able to talk about where ideas come and how ideas develop and, you know, that it's creativity is a long process. It's not just like, oop, there's an idea and I made something. It's it, you got to work at it and work at it. And that work is an act of love. And the more you love a project, the more work you're willing to put into it. Absolutely, man. Well, thanks again. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. That was a blast. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good one. You too. Thank you for listening to the Greetings from Wherever podcast. To support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Music, Or just like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you. And we'll see you next time.